This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein. Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and is a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And today we're talking about a few trillion dollars in spending and possibly defaulting on our country's debt. Richard, there are so many spending bills to keep track of right now, and you've addressed some of them in your column. And just before we started recording this, Congress did actually pass a continuing resolution so that we won't have a government shutdown starting tomorrow. Now, next to be voted on will be the $1 trillion infrastructure bill. Richard, you took issue with a lot of what is called infrastructure in in the bill. Why is that? Well, when you talk about infrastructure, there's a traditional definition, and it's more or less respected, at least in part, in the $1 trillion part, but it's utterly unrespected in the 3.5 remainder. Uh, the definition of infrastructure is not whether it's something that is important, something which is worthy of investment. It's the sort of thing that private individuals on their own behalf cannot create because infrastructure is always designed to create a collective good. So one goes right back to what the famous article or book by Manker also on the logic of collective action. And what he says, if you try to get collective goods by voluntary contributions, except in very small communities, everybody will also say, well, I can enjoy the benefits so long as somebody else pays for it. And so what typically happens under these circumstances is nobody's willing to pay for something. Whereas if you put a tax into place, let's say for $10 and everybody had to pay it and nobody could opt out, all of them would get, say, $15 or so $5 net benefit. So the basic logic of collective action is that there's a joint good that requires everybody to put something in. You're better off with coercion because the benefit to you comes from the fact that coercion is applied to somebody else in a project which turns out to be positive sum. When you start to think about certain kinds of things like whether or not you want to do babysitting and so forth, it is not a collective action situation. You can easily decide that you want to hire a babysitter, whether or not your neighbor does the same thing. You could decide independently how much you wish to pay that babysitter and so forth. And so there's no reason to have the government mentioned intervene in these circumstances, leave people with money in their pockets and let them decide how much to do it. The great advantage of this is you avoid the internet and the infrastructure straitjacket in which in order to build a road, you have to agree as to where it's going to run, what it's going to be, its composition, where the on-ramps are going to be, and so forth. If you don't have to do it, uh, then when you make these individual investments, I can decide to invest in one kind of babysitter. You can decide to invest in another one. That is, the choices are partable, which means that each of them is going to satisfy the person who makes it more than the other. So the standard laissez-faire system, I would never associate the, the improvements that you have by raising children who are smart with infrastructure and the kinds of statements that you hear from people like Janet Yellen saying, well, when I was young, if I didn't have a babysitter, I could have never worked for government. Uh, What she really should have said is I was able to go to the private market, hire the needed babysitter, and I was able to work in government. It's certainly not an argument for saying, well, uh, since I was successful in a voluntary market, what we have to do is now mandate a program in which everybody's babysitting is somehow or they're going to be paid for by everybody else. So uh, the uh, difference between the two classes of cases are absolute, total, and complete. And when you start to see them as being equivalent because they're both important, it means that you don't understand either the history or the logic of infrastructure construction. Well, let's talk the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill, uh, because the, the, the $1 trillion infrastructure bill looks like it'll pass. It looks like a few Republican senators will probably peel off and, and vote for it. I, I want to probably provide some context on the $3.5 trillion 
reconciliation bill because it's not an annual budget for spending. It's an additional $3.5 trillion in spending over 10 years. And I don't know if you know this, Richard, but apparently it's supposed to cost nothing or $0 because President Biden and Speaker Pelosi have included tax increases and, and pay-fors within the bill. Can you talk us through what's in the, the bill and the idea that it won't cost anything? Where does that come from? Well, let's just start with the notion that it's not going to cost us anything, right? Um, this is a rather heroic assumption, which confuses two things. One is it doesn't cost you anything, so you get all the benefits and you pay no taxes. And the other is it's going to cost you a lot, but you figure it out how it is that you're going to raise sufficient funds and taxation in order to cover it. In order to do that, you have to figure out who it is that you're going to tax. And it turns out that these particular benefits, in many cases, are designed to deal with such things as child child care and affordable housing, the two largest items in this situation. It's not clear who's going to get the benefit in any particular case. Affordable housing is not for everybody. Some people will prefer to hire their own babysitters or child care and so forth. So you get this indefinite situation. So you're not quite sure where the benefits are going. And then you have to decide how you're going to allocate the cost. If you're a classical liberal like I am, Essentially, what happens is you think that there's one theory of taxation you deeply stay away from and another that you tend to adopt. The one that you adopt is the so-called benefit theory of taxation, and it's designed to work with taxation in the way I just mentioned in connection with Manker Olson's book. Everybody has to kick in for a road. Uh, You need to have the coercion to get the thing built. But in effect, if you do it, uh, the gains that each person gets are going to be greater than the taxes that they pay and the administrative costs needed to do it. And the reason why you want a lockstep progression under those circumstances, if it's not lockstep, then everybody's going to say, well, we have to really tax people between, say, $5 and $15. You pay $15 and I pay $5. And so what you'll do is you'll battle over the amount that you have to pay. And this then easily could get translated in the modern context. What we ought to do is to tax the rich for these. Miss AOC managed to wear a very elegant dressing, exactly that message. Uh, but even that's a message which actually is a little bit enigmatic. Who is rich for the purposes of this rule? Is it only people who earn $5 million a year, at which point you can't hope to confiscate uh, enough wealth to get this to work? Or does it take anybody who earns over $400,000 a year, which gets you a two-bedroom know, two apartment in New York City and not much more? Are you going to have to do this varying by figuring out where the dollars are really go for in small counties and small and small state on where it doesn't. So taxing the RICs means it's going to be a huge amount of discretion. There's going to be a political fight over to whom this is going to be. What you will then discuss is that you, no matter what you do, you're never going to raise the revenue that's promised. Uh, the moment you decide to tax certain kinds of activities, there will be less of those particular activities. So if you want to tax them, um, uh, standard corporate bonds, there'll be a greater purchase of municipal bonds. If you want to tax both of these things, then it's going to cost the states more to finance themselves, and they're going to have to be able to raise revenues from some other tax source and so forth. So what you really are always asking in these tax questions is, what you get by way of a public good, is it worth the tax that you want? And in these particular things, for the reasons I've just stated, private investment is generally better. So the Biden people think they can get it out of taxing the so-called rich of say, roughly speaking, 400000 or more. But the adoptive response 
means that they're surely wrong and there'll be a shortfall. Well, then how do you do for that? Well, you could start to borrow money, which is a very nice thing to do if it turns out that you can pay it back, but uh, you have to pay the piper back sooner or later, and that itself becomes very awkward. Or you could pay it back through inflation. And the difficulty with both the debt solution on the one hand and the inflation solution on the other is that's a tax on everybody. So ironically, if you don't tax the risk, you're taxing us all. And what are you getting for it is very doubtful. So this is the kind of bill, for the reasons that I've mentioned, that you never want to see taking place anywhere. Maybe you want to give some tax credits to targeted individuals, although I'm not wildly enthusiastic about that. To me, the single most important thing that you want to do in all of these markets is to reduce the regulation so you get more competition taking place, and those things will start to make some degree of sense. In the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about the debt ceiling, which currently stands at about $28 trillion. And uh, I'd like to remind listeners that in 2007, federal debt was a little over $9 trillion. In 2016, a little less than a decade later, it was at $20 trillion. So now we're approaching $28 trillion. I believe uh, Janet Yellen, chair of the Federal Reserve, put October 18th as the, the projected day that we would default if we didn't raise the debt ceiling. So how much of this issue, Richard, is on Democrats? How much is on Republicans? And are we ever really going to see the U.S. default on its obligations? Well, I think more of it is on Democrats than on Republicans, but Republicans have their favorite people as well. So uh, Republicans are always nice about certain things like ethanol subsidies in farm states where they hope that they will have strong support. And the farm states are pretty powerful because the Senate is basically as important in the House in this. So uh, Midwestern states with small populations exert a disproportionate influence, and they can kind of put these things into place. I think the Democrats are probably a bit more eager to do this. They have less about this. And of course, they have all sorts of programs that are essentially infinite sinks, you know, including affordable housing and uh, programs that that we're talking about, educational assistance and home health care and all the rest of that stuff. So they will do it. I think the other difference between them is that the Republicans realize that there's a cost to pay. So they're a little bit more cautious. I didn't say they were virtuous, a little more cautious. And the Democrats somehow are a thing that tomorrow will never come. And so therefore, if so long as you could raise the debt, you're going to be fine and you take a Paul Krugman attitude. So long as money is cheap to borrow, why not borrow a huge amount of it? There's a following very serious difficulty about this. In the good old days, what did you borrow money for? When you borrowed money was essentially to create capital assets. So you want to build a new freeway. It turns out that you can't pay for it all today out of current income. So you treat the freeway the way you would treat a home. And the private person would get a mortgage lasting the useful life of the home. And you'd like the government to be able to borrow money on that thing and then probably secure it at least in part by the asset you're building on. The new stuff, however, is simply uh, debt for consumption. And what happens is the consumption disappears and the debt remains. Uh, It turns out that on balance, you're going to start to see a reduction in productive activities because of all sorts of dead weight losses. So what you do is you start running up small and then they will get progressively larger situations in which there's either a future default risk or a future inflation risk or a need for more borrowing with the same kind of problem. Uh, what happens is if you spend wealth beyond your current means, the future generations have to pay for it. And you can pick your poisons on the way in which they're done. Uh, we try to use things like budget reconciliation to limit what's going on. But it's quite clear that given this general mindset, it doesn't work. So if the Republicans say that Democrats are always doing it for their people. 
We better do it for our people. And then it's tit for tat, and everybody goes further and further off the rail. Um, if you look at a president, he's supposed to have the nationwide view. He's not supposed to yield to the Iowa farmers on the one hand or the fishermen by the coast on the other. Uh, but when you have President Biden in there and when you had President Trump in there, uh, they were always willing to sort of take this kind of thing. So Trump was you know, much better than Biden on deregulation, uh, but he was also a pretty big spender when it came to doing these kinds of things. And in the end, what happens is the guarantee is to a larger public sector, which is going to be less productive than the private sector. The revenues you will get from the private sector will start to decline, and you'll see an implosion. My guess is we've probably seen the peak on the stock market uh, for a while because because even if tech booms in bad times, uh, the cumulative weight of the Biden legislation and the various budgetary situations and the international complications lead me to believe that it's not very likely in the short run there's any safe place to put money. You leave it in cash, it's not going to work because it can depreciate with deflation. You put it in stocks, well, it turns out if their dividends are going to go down, uh, you're going to lose capital value as well. You start to invest in bonds and it turns out the interest rates go up, the capital value of your bonds start to go down. And so there's no place to hide. So I'm going to give free unlicensed advice that everybody's totally free to disregard, which says if you don't know what's going on, which is, I think, the case with all of us, the best strategy is some form of diversification. And good luck at thinking what that diversification strategy is, because to talk about diversification is only to say don't put your eggs in one basket. It's not to say which baskets you put what fraction of your eggs in uh, when the time comes. So we are, again, in a fairly parlous state uh, with respect to this sort of issue. We do not have a healthy fiscal constitution We don't have any statesmen who are sort of above the fray, who are prepared to point out the systematic risk. What you do is you have everybody moving very rapidly for a partisan advantage, and that just cannot last for a very long time. Well, let's end on uh, this issue of just trillions and trillions in spending we've seen in the last two years. We've had the CARES Act. We've had the Consolidated Appropriations Act. We've had the American Rescue Plan. Now we're talking infrastructure and reconciliation bills. And one of the two senators standing in the way is Senator Manchin. Um, he just released a statement saying, as I've said for months, I can't support three and a half trillion more in spending when we've already spent 5.4 trillion since last March. At some point, all of us, regardless of party, must ask the simple question, how much is enough? And Richard, I'm glad someone at least is asking that question, question but I want to know, have we abandoned annual budgeting in the United States? I mean, give me some hope. Are we ever coming back from this or are we just going to have stimulus and, and new spending bills pop up all throughout the years? Well, I mean, the problem is you see Manchin, and the only reason people listen to him is because of the 50-50 division. Um, he's a nominal Democrat. Um, the world would probably be a better place if he became a nominal Republican because at that particular point, other things would start to slow down. Uh, but he does not want to do that, and I'm sure he has good and sufficient reasons. The same thing with Miss Cinema, uh, sitting there in Arizona the same way. Uh, but the two of them essentially uh, have each of them a finger in a hole in a dike which threatens to inundate us. Uh, you can't rely on two senators in peculiar circumstances to create long-term stability. So the question is, do you have any verbal leadership which is going to sort of take the way? So I think, for example, of my friend, late friend Jim Buchanan, who was a pretty notable public choice economist. And what he used to say, he regarded public debt as sin. 
That was the word that he used. This is not what an economist is saying. He essentially thought that what happened is when you did this, you ate your seed corn and the long-term consequences had to be very, very bad and you had to stop it. We need somebody like that to kind of counsel about this today. What's happened with the economic profession is is in this case not an entirely happy story. Um, When you start looking at the Democratic side, they're all Keynesians now and they see no tomorrow. It's a question of borrowing cheap and paying back even cheaper. So let's just do more of it. You know, Paul Krugman is a reading illustration of that. Tom Friedman is a kind of a political guy who starts to take exactly the same way. If you start looking at more traditional economists, the problem is they don't engage at that level. Uh, most of them are essentially doctoral types. They're trained into sort of figuring out, well, how do we what the optimal capital structure of a corporation? Or what's the way in which we want to have voting boards put together in public corporations? So what they do is they tend to talk about important questions of the micro value. So they never talk about the large macro questions. And so there's no voice on the other side. I, you know, have always spoken out on just about anything, but there's also a new culture on that, which is the stay in your own lane culture. And so it turns out that public intellectuals, I think, are weaker now in terms of their ability to do stuff than they've ever been before. And I don't regard journalists as public intellectuals because I think, in effect, they have a very different skill set. And I regard a public intellectual, somebody who's first an intellectual and then can do in the public. And journalists essentially are people who learn a story in order to write it up and then venture some kind of opinion, but they've never done any systematic study in the areas on which they write. So I think that there's a real void, and I think it should be traced back to the academy. The conservatives essentially do things that are too small, and there are too many people on the left who do big things and they do them too badly. So I'm not particularly optimistic about it. And when I look at the White House, I mean, I just see a man who is inept on every single issue that he talks about. And I don't think he's ever going to be able to unscramble his mind when it comes to these things because it's not, he's not a young dog or a young horse and he's not going to learn new tricks. So he's going to continue to sound more like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. And then you see the political invective. It gets very strong. Uh, you get somebody, oh, I don't want you to remain as the head of the Fed, Mr. Powell. Uh, so what I'm going to do is call you dangerous because you want to deregulate Wall Street. Um, there's a lot of stuff like this going on in the economy today, and it's just not possible to have reasoned discussions when the political branches and the journalistic branches become so hyperbolic. And, you know, this is part of the general intolerance. The basic rule is there's nothing that's settled when it comes to matters of high-risk public policy. Everybody's in a risk position. And so in order to reduce the risk, you should listen to people with whom you disagree. Uh, But that's not the rule today. Um, It turns out when you disagree on serious issues, the application of natural immunities and COVID cases and so forth, and you're not on the majority, you are now engaged in misinformation. Well, if everybody who knows something is engaged in misinformation, and there's going to be a very serious decline. And what you're seeing in the budgetary area and in the expenditure areas is, I think, symptomatic of a larger set of institutional decay that is happening. I certainly don't want to exempt the Republicans from these criticisms. Uh, but if you're trying to figure out where the driving force is today, we know which side of the aisle that is on. You've been listening to the Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, on defining ideas at hoover.org each week. If you enjoyed our conversation, please rate this show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you tune in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. Thanks for listening.
This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.